Bill Peschel and welcome to Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents. Our guest today is an award-winning mystery novelist. She is the author of three novels in the Annie Oakley series, the first of which, A Girl with a Gun, won the Best Mystery Prize at the New Mexico Arizona Book Awards, including the Tony Hillerman Award at the same event for scoring the most points of all the books in competition. She also has a new series set at the Ziegfeld Follies in 1920 featuring costume designer and amateur sleuth Grace Michelle called Grace in the Wings. Please welcome to the show an author, teacher, educational consultant, and horsewoman, our guest, Carrie Beauvais. Carrie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. How's the weather out there in New Mexico? Well, it's nice. It's hot. It's, uh, it's not as hot as it was last week. We were having, you know, triple digits, but this week it's back down to high 90s and had some evening and um, nighttime rains, which is always nice. We're starting our monsoonal season, so um, that's always a, a great relief from the heat. Mm -hmm. I was out in uh, Phoenix, so I remember years ago, I can still remember just that hot, dry heat out there that just would drive you indoors. And we're having some of the same thing here in Hershey, but it's a lot damper. Right, yeah. And sometimes, you know, when it's not as humid, which it often isn't here, um, it, it doesn't feel quite as hot as it is. But yeah, I've, I've been in Phoenix in those, uh, you know, those triple digits, 115, 119, and uh, no thanks. I mean, it's much better here in New Mexico. We usually have about 100 degree temperatures for a week or two during the summer. It's usually not too bad. Oh, so it's a lot more, it's a lot more moderate than what I remember Phoenix being then. Right. The elevation's a bit higher, and I think that helps. Mm, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let, let's talk about your writing career. Um, have you always been a writer? Have you always wanted to write? Yeah, you know, I, whether I was consciously aware that I wanted to be a writer, I have always been a writer ever since I was a little kid. I, I've always found that to just be the most comfortable way for me to express myself and had, you know, a wild imagination. And, um, you know, it was really a great way to harness that when I was, you know, a young girl and uh, journaled all the time, wrote short, short stories and poetry and, and all of that. And when I got into college, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to major in and finally came to the conclusion that I, you know, that English was probably the best major for me. Um, and so started, you know, reading all the, you know, English literature classics and writing papers. And it just, it was just so natural that, um, you know, and I really enjoyed the writing process, which, you know, was, is different than novel writing, but um, really enjoyed that. And so that's when I kind of decided I would like to pursue writing in one way or another. Yeah. When you were doing your reading in English literature back that, at that time, did any of that inform your writing today? Did you find anything to draw from or was it more your contemporary reading? No, it was, uh, it was very influential for me in the fact that um, I was doing a lot of um, British history and a lot of um, studying of the British classics, um, the Bronte sisters, Jane Austen, all those 19th century writers. And it really got me interested in the history um, of the area of England. And so um, when I was 30, my mother took me to England for the first time. And I, I just really got so excited about the history of it. And, and that's really when my love of history was born. 
And so in that regard, yes, it did very much influence, you know, what I would be writing um, going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So whenever, uh, so when it comes to something like writing a contemporary or writing historical, you feel more comfortable going back into the, into the historical era. What is it about the, that area that draws you to it? Well, yeah, you know, um, the contemporary stuff, I love contemporary mysteries and, you know, Tony Hillerman was a huge influence um, on me as well. And I started out writing contemporary mysteries, but um, went back to history because um, I really liked the idea of when solving crimes back in, you know, a hundred years ago or further, they didn't have the technology that we have today to help assist. So it was, it was based on, you know, you know, hard evidence and um, also that, you know, a lot of intuition, like, you know, people had to really follow their intuition, follow their gut. They didn't have technology to rely on. So I really liked that aspect of, particularly for writing mysteries. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, my love of history is, you know, as soon as I get an idea for a novel and I start researching it, I just have a field day. I just love it. Oh yes, whenever I've gone back into, into doing whatever historical reading I'm doing, uh, my wife is reading now about the, histo the history of the home in Victorian times. And oh, she is coming up, she's coming up at the breakfast table with just amazing facts and interpretations of facts as well. Uh, such as in the, the, the 1920s, how little of England was actually electrified and how, how many people, like half the population, had to rely on candles just in order to light their homes. Right, and a lot of them were suspicious of electricity. <laughs> exactly, <You know? laughs> yes. Just like in the like, same way. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, because they were they were just as suspicious of gaslighting because of course if gaslighting if the if the gas was turned off you poison yourself. So what was electricity going to do as well? Right, and how would it affect you, you know? But there was also commentary at the time about how it was actually better to light your homes with candles or go back to wood stoves as opposed to these modern innovations. There was like this nostalgic for the past that the people who were writing the articles, writing the books, were trying to impose on people who realized, you know, when you have, uh, when you have a stove, it's a lot easier to cook your food than it is to light it on an open hearth. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, getting back to your, like your earlier years, when you were, what were you reading when you were a child? Oh my gosh. Um, I read a lot of all of those horse novels by Marguerite Henry, you mm. know, um, Misty of Chintic. I can never say that word. Um, Chincoteague. Chincoteague. Uh, thank you so much. I, yeah, I can read it, but I can't say it. Um, I read all of those. Um, I read a lot of Nancy Drew and um, the Hardy Boys mysteries and um, then when I was about 12 or 13, I read Gone with the Wind, and I was just blown away by that novel. And that, you know, it took me a long time to read it because I was pretty young and, and everything. And it's, you know, it's quite long. But, um, and that's another reason why I, I think I was interested in the history of that time of that Civil War period and kind of how life was lived then. And um, so I read a lot of, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Were yeah. your uh, were you in a family of readers? Yes. My, well, my mother um, my mother read some, but my father was a voracious reader, and um, he used to go on business trips when my brother and I were very young, and he would always come back and bring us something, and he always brought me books. And he would bring me books like um, there was a, when I was really young, there was a series of books on, on these little orphans in France. And so I loved those. He brought me three or four of those. And then he would also bring me, um, you know, more nonfiction type books like um, classic painters or, you know, things, you know, things that, that pertain to that, things that pertain to authors and um, so he really fostered that in me and all, you know, always read to us when we were very young. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we started off with, you know, Winnie the Pooh and, you know, all of those great classics. And so I think it really was, he really was the one who fostered that in me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was also the one who kind of fostered your interest in Annie Oakley as well. I understand he recommended a documentary. Right, exactly. Um, I had uh, worked on a, a novel that dealt with some of the history in New Mexico, and um, I was looking for something else to write, and I, you know, I wanted to write mystery, but he suggested I watch this documentary, this PBS American Experience um, show on Annie Oakley, and I wasn't that interested because the, you know, everything that I knew about Annie Oakley was portrayed in a very um, one-dimensional way, like she was a very one-dimensional character in like Annie Gets Your Gun and, you know, some of the movies that were done about her. So I was like, oh, that's just fluff, you know, I don't, I don't really want to, you know, spend my time on that. But he encouraged me. He said she really was a remarkable woman. And so I did watch it and she was a very remarkable woman. I was immediately fascinated by her and fascinated by her depth of character what she went through as a child, um, how she worked in this field of men, surrounded by men, besting them all. And um, she was just this little tiny thing. She was, you know, five feet tall. She probably weighed less than a hundred pounds. And she was just a dynamo. And she, she really launched herself by being herself with this natural talent that she had. And um, I was fascinated and, and I did, but I didn't want to write a biography and I didn't, you know, so I thought, wow, I wonder what she'd be like as an amateur sleuth. And, you know, from everything I had read and everything I'd seen, she was smart, you know, she had the wherewithal, she was gutsy, um, she was perfect. So that's when I decided to try to, to write a mystery with her and Girl with a Gun was born. Mm -hmm. how, did that, how did that start out? Were you able to really apply her to a mystery or did it take some kind of, some kind of effort to get, to get rolling with that? Um, it took a little bit of effort. I, I had to come up with the crime and I had to, of course, you know, writing a mystery is like creating a big jigsaw puzzle. You know, not only do you have to solve the puzzle, you have to create the puzzle. Um, and so it took a little bit of time for me to figure out what I wanted to do and, and that book in particular you know a lot of people ask me about my process and it's really different with every book but that book um, it was a it was really about doing the research then doing some writing then doing some more research then doing more writing and then as I would write things would come up 
and I think, oh, that's interesting. You know, the subconscious kind of takes over. And then I would research that. And, um, and then, you know, and then as I was researching, other things would come up and I would be like, okay, now how am I going to put that into the story? So it was really, um, um, it was, it was very much a, um, give and take with the research and the writing, you know, going back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. I had written a number of uh, short stories involving Mark Twain and Sherlock Holmes. And I found um, that trying to figure out how Samuel Clemens would actually act as opposed to how he would actually write is, was a, it was a very, it was a big challenge because I wanted to remain true to him and at the same time tell the story. So right. we're, what was your relationship with Annie as, as you learned more about her and tried to figure out how she would act in a certain situation that, of course, she wouldn't in real life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, and there are, you know, there's pretty standard accounts of her life and what she was like. Um, but then I, you know, I wanted to kind of breathe life into her. So, you know, I, I did fictionalize a few things. Um, I altered some timelines. I, you know, I did things, embellished things, embellished characters, embellished her a bit to make the story more interesting. But, um, you know, I, I had always sort of seen her and through my research, you know, she was a very plucky individual. She was, uh, very determined. She, um, she was a strong woman. She didn't put up with much guff. Um, so that part of making her an amateur sleuth, a strong female protagonist was pretty easy. Um, you know, and so I, I think that I did a fairly good job of portray portraying her as she would have been in life. Yeah. So I, I mean, People might disagree, but um, I did the best that I could to stick with that. One of the things that impressed me about the book was her quake was that you portrayed her Quaker beliefs. So she would do things and then realize how she violated the tenant. I won't go into detail. That's kind of a spoiler, but she would um, do things and she'd have to reflect on her Quaker beliefs and react to them as well. And I think you captured that conflict very nicely. Yes. Does that um, show up in the later books as well? Well, yeah. Um, I thought it was a really interesting concept. And uh, when I found out she was raised Quaker, I, I went ahead and did some research on Quakerism and sort of what their beliefs are. And it really resonated with how I wanted to create her as a character in that they believe that everyone is equal. Like, no one, they don't believe in titles. They don't believe that anyone is superior to anyone else. Um, they were very much against slavery and very much against violence. And, but then I thought, wow, this was a woman who made her living shooting a gun. Like, and, uh, and, you know, working in the arena with Buffalo Bill and the Indian War reenactments. And how did, how did she feel about that? You know, and so it, it kind of created this built-in conflict with how did she reconcile and also, she was a ginormous celebrity. So she was, in a sense, different than, um, I wouldn't say superior, but she lived a more, um, 
uh, privileged life once she started working than her a lot of her contemporaries. So how did she reconcile that? And so um, I thought it was a great way to bring in some good conflict into um, how she was raised, what her basic beliefs were, yet what she was faced with in, you know, in this world where she was a huge celebrity. Yeah. And she's also experiencing the beginnings of celebrity culture as well, because she's getting to be recognized and she's having to deal a little bit with that, at least in the, in the first book too. Yeah. In, uh, in the third book, in Folly at Bear, um, I have, she's, at this point, she's been famous for quite some time. She's been on a couple of European tours. She's a, um, an international sensation. And she's starting to be a little bit road weary. She's, it's wearing on her. It's wearing on her relationship with her husband. It's, um, it's taking a toll, as I would imagine that kind of celebrity does. And so that was also a really interesting, um, an interesting thing to look into. It was like, you know, she couldn't be Miss Perky 24-7 for years. I mean, she obviously had difficulties in her life based upon her celebrity, based upon her fatigue. Um, and, you know, she and Frank Butler had an amazing relationship. They were completely soulmates, but surely it wasn't perfect the whole time they were married. So I wanted to address that in, in the third book. Yeah, they did have a rather amazing uh, relationship. I read up on it as well. And it's, it's, it's almost, almost heartbreakingly romantic as well. Yeah. Yes. Another aspect of your book that you play up very well is the horsemanship, where we can follow what she's doing as she's, you know, riding her horse, how her love for horses and her skill with them as well. And I understand that kind of comes from from your life as well. Is that true? Yes. So I don't know that Annie Oakley had a special horse in her life or that she was a fantastic horsewoman or anything like that. Um, and I should mention that um, Girl with a Gun, there is a prequel novella to that book called Shoot Like a Girl that um, I published. And it, it establishes her relationship with Buck and how um, she develops this bond with this horse who um, is with her throughout her career, you know, in my fictional world. Um, and I just didn't, I knew that she did do some mounted shooting. There's photographs with her shooting on horseback. Um, and there's a fantastic photograph, you guys should look it up sometime, of her side saddle. She always, you know, most of the time rode side saddle and this horse is rearing up and she's in this side saddle, you know, riding this huge horse and it rears up. It's a fabulous photograph. Um, and so I knew that she must have had some skill. So, um, but I just didn't feel like I could write a book about Annie Oakley and the Wild West show without bringing in some kind of horsemanship because I'm a horsewoman and I have been my whole life. And um, it, just, it just made sense to me. And it's one of the things that people I think like most about the book is her relationship with Buck. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's great. And it's also that you can describe the procedures for, you know, saddling a horse, for, for riding it, for controlling the horse, and not lose the reader as well. It's not so arcane that it's difficult to follow, but you can get the pleasure of it. 
because I've, I've only ridden a horse once on my honeymoon. And of course, oh. it was a very gentle horse, very, very pleasant. But still, you're still sitting up there like 12 feet off the ground on this huge animal who could stomp you in a moment if it had a will to. And it's well, uh, and the scary thing about horses is that they're prey animals, and so their their instinct is to run. You know, if something is threatening to them, their instinct is to flee, and so that always it's like you know a bird. So that's always there's always that sort of inherent risk with dealing with horses. So um, yeah, so it was it was a really it was so fun to really explore that. I had. Um, been studying natural horsemanship for about 10 years and really wanted to bring that forward into the novels because it's so important to me that um, people know about natural horsemanship and um, how you can really have a great relationship with your horse without force, without um, cruelty, without, you know, all of that stuff because people want to manhandle a horse, which when you think about it is quite silly because they weigh like a thousand pounds, 12,000, 1200 pounds. Um, and you know, there's no way we can out muscle them. So it's better to work with them in the language that they understand. So what is, what are the principles behind natural horsemanship then? How does that differ it's, from what we're used to seeing? Well, it is more about using body language as opposed to um, verbal commands or, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, when they get on a horse, they kick them to go and pull them to stop. But when you really study horses and horse psychology, they're incredibly sensitive beings. And, you know, they can feel a fly land on them. So there's really no need to... I. I I can't stand it when I watch these shows and they've got, you know, someone taking off on a horse. First of all, they're yelling at the horse, yeah, yeah. And then they're kicking and, you know, doing all of this stuff when it's just, it's just so not necessary. So yeah. um, I think that, you know, television and movies and stuff don't do the best job of portraying um, the best way to communicate with a horse. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of it's body language. If you watch horses in, um, in the wild or out in the pasture, there's a lot of like, if, if a, another horse is getting too close to um, a horse and they don't like it, they'll turn around and nip at them or they'll, you know, kick at them or it's all, you know, these principles of driving, driving away, um, coming off of pressure, come, you know, moving into pressure, coming off of pressure, all those things um, that, it just makes more sense to the horse and horses are incredibly forgiving animals because we've done a lot to horses and we can, we can make a horse do anything. But what I was interested in was having a partnership with my horse and working in partnership with the horse. So that's what I started studying natural horsemanship. I think it's something that seems to require a lot of patience to handle because it's, it's a matter of operating at the horse's pace and thought processes rather than our own rush, 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 rush. Exactly. It takes time. Yeah. You know, it takes a lot of time. And, um, and, but it's, it's worth it. It's been, you know, I've been working with one of my horses on getting her to cross water because we have a lot of these um, natural ditches to irrigate and there's several water crossings and she's terrified of water. 
And so using these methods, I have a trainer that I work with that has helped me. And it's taken me about uh, three or four sessions, but she is now able to get her feet in the water without just blowing through and taking off. And um, it's, you know, the first few times was very, very frustrating, but I stuck with the principles and um, it's working. So that was a big success, you know. Well, that's great. That's great. That's fascinating. That is very, very fascinating. I love that just because we've had cats and we've had dogs and we've had other animals. And the more we pay attention, the more we see they can think. You know, they do think, they think at their own pace, they solve the problems their own way, but they're, they're trying to, and they try to communicate with us. And we have to be kind of more aware, I guess, just like we have to be more aware when we're with people about what they're trying yeah. to communicate and that kind of empathy is really important to develop. Right. I think working with animals just makes you a better human being. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, let's, yeah. let's go ahead and talk about, you have another book series in the works, Grace in the Wings, about, um, as I understand, she is a uh, costume designer and an amateur detective. And your first book, Grace in the Wings, is out, obviously. Um, what, what made you decide to go to a second series? Well, this book, um, Grace in the Wings, has been in the wings for uh, several years, a decade or more. And um, I was just really fascinated with um, the Ziegfeld Follies and Broadway show business back in the day and uh, thought that it would be really great to, you know, develop a murder mystery series in that era and, you know, using the Follies as a backdrop. Um, so I, you know, it, it, it had always been there. And actually I started working on that book before I started the Annie Oakley books, but I had an agent at the time when, um, before I started the Annie Oakley books and she's like, you got to go with that idea because that is really something no one's done it before. It's really a great idea. So I sort of vectored to the Annie Oakley books and then, you know, always intended to, um, publish the Grace books. Um, I had only written the one, and right now I'm working on the second book in the series. So that's sort of how that came about. Okay. Um, so why the jump to, let's see, I already talked about that, about as far as the follies are concerned. Again, it's another historical era in which everything has to be done kind of by hand. You don't have the mass media. You don't have cell phones. If you want to send a message, you got to walk over to the telegraph place, send a message, or I guess now pay, then pick up a phone. So it's a, but it's also kind of a slower pace, but it's still, you have technological advances there to deal with in the 1920s that uh, Annie Oakley didn't have in her day. And that's, that's also interesting, just the, the inventions, the, the way you have Annie Oakley, of course, she's starting... I can't remember now in the 1880s, but by the 1920s, she has seen so much happen in just that short period of time. It's a really concentrated leap in terms of, of inventions and technology and everything else. Right. And, um, you know, in, in Grace in the Wings, I also have um, the love interest is a private investigator. So that, you know, that kind of helps my protagonist a little bit in that there's someone who also has, you know, capabilities like Annie Oakley has um, Emma Wilson, who's a, an investigative journalist. 
she has her to kind of bounce things off us to do things that Annie Oakley wouldn't be able to do because, you know, she's working in this world. And in the Grace books, Grace Michelle, um, she's, you know, an apprentice costume designer. She's trying to, you know, live out her dream, you know, doing this and her sister's murdered. And so a PI is hired to protect her. But in turn, they, they start investigating, you know, what happened to her sister. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yes, and they, you know, there was a little bit more technology, but not a whole lot, you know, not a whole lot of, you know, fingerprinting, I think, was just barely being used, and yeah. um, there was really no DNA testing. Autopsies, you know, um, in the 20s, autopsies weren't routinely done, you know, but they were occasionally done, and, you know, of course, you know, not very advanced at all. So um, that was also interesting to me. So it's a you know a little bit more technologically advanced, but not a great deal. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are your future plans? You said you're working on another Grace book, right? Yes. This one is set um, in 1924. Grace has moved to Hollywood, and she's now working in silent films. And um, so she uh, and she gets involved in a murder mystery in that on the you know a famous director is murdered and so she goes in to investigate that and she has reasons for doing it you know mm -hmm. um and that's been really fun to research so i'm doing that then i have another book that is coming out in um in the fall in october and it's a book that again i wrote quite a long time ago um self-published it under a different title way back in 2006 reworked it, retitled it, and um, it's a Southwestern mystery, and it takes place in the 1950s. So we've moved up a little bit in technology, but it takes place here in New Mexico on an archeological dig. And um, it's really, you know, it's really the book of my heart. It's really um, a book that means a lot to me. And you know, it's one of my very first full-length novels and people are like oh you should just keep it under the bed and I just couldn't I just had to keep working this thing I think I've had it edited I don't know two dozen times <laughs> it's I sort of cut my teeth on this book and so it's finally it's finally in you know good enough shape that I feel comfortable putting it out there into the world that's great and what is it called it's called bones of the redeemed mm-hmm well, I'll be looking forward to seeing that in October then. Um, Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and let's see, of course, your books are going to be available online. Uh, you want to tell us what your website is? Huh? Yes, uh -huh. the website is carriebovet.com, and it's spelled K-A-R-I-B as in boy, O, B as in Victor, E-E.com. And um, I have a pretty robust website. There's a lot going on there. If people subscribe to my newsletter. I do lots of giveaways, um, contests, um, you know, lots of news and things like that. So. Excellent. Yeah. And, and of course, Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop does have your books for sale. So if you want to go to mysterybooksonline.com, I'm going to have to make sure that's right. And uh, you can order Carrie's books there as well. And I highly recommend them. So this has been Mechanicsburg Mystery Presents, talking with Carrie Beauvais. Thank you so much for spending the day with us. And you have a good, Thank hopefully, you. I really had fun. and have a cool day in New Mexico.
Yes, you too in Hershey. <laughs>this was mechanicsburg mystery bookshop presents a conversation with carrie bovet for more information about events at the store or to order her books visit our website at www.mysterybooksonline.com and thank you for listening